welcome to the Inclusive Leader Podcast. The practice of inclusive leadership enables us to tackle the complex challenges of our times. This is the space for conversations about inclusive leadership. I am your host, Jörg Schmitz, and I welcome you to this episode. In this episode, I continue conversations about interculturalism with Tanya Pellegrini. Tanya focuses on addressing and reconciling the tensions between people who see the world very differently. In other words, who see the world through their own and very different cultural lenses. Cultural differences are emotional experiences. And she also shares her own example of that. We also discuss how cultural insights and generalizations are no shortcut for getting to know people more deeply. Quite the opposite, actually, that these generalizations provide a great starting point for curiosity about ourselves and for others, and a host of other important skills. Thank you for listening to our conversation. So, Tanya, let's let's dive right in as as we just talked about. So, um, so what do you do? <laughs> um, I find that's always a very difficult question to answer. I am an intercultural trainer, and I know that as a title doesn't mean a lot or it could mean many, many different things. Yeah. Basically, what I do is train and coach individuals and teams who work with people who have a different cultural background to their own. Um, and when, when we're speaking of culture here, it's not just related to the country, where, the country where you were brought up or what passport you have. It relates to um, a variety of elements that could be um, a different religious background. It could be a different age background, of course. The national background does come into it a lot um, because I, it, uh, where we were brought up, the society we were brought up in, does impact the way we see the world a lot and therefore the way we communicate and behave at work and generally do business. Um, and so I, I, um, I work with business people. I don't tend to work with individuals who are just out as tourists or holidays. And can I ask, I mean, just out of curiosity, and we share some of, some of this professional focus, obviously, but when, um, when people call you for your services, what do they what do they tell you? I mean, what? How do they describe this? I, I always thought when I, I was doing similar work, it's it it was like being a medical professional with an obscure um, kind of specialization. And you know, in order for you, for for somebody to call you, they need to somehow at least suspect that there is something where your expertise is helpful. And I found that to be the first challenge that people may have not diagnose their own affliction very well or the people that actually need it never call you know I don't, I don't know how, how you are experiencing that yeah that's a good question well it's I find that people don't contact me until they've actually they're in a difficult situation until they've actually faced a challenge so it's it's not usually a company that says oh look um, we're about to open a company in uh, in Japan. Can you help us? It's usually they've opened the company in Japan, they've experienced the challenges, and then they think, oh, I think we need some help. So I tend to work with, in three different areas. And 
it's always once people have experienced a challenge, as I said, that they contact us. So um, three different areas are related in that they're all related to how we deal with people who see the world differently compared to us. Mm-hmm. So one of them is, uh, and this is probably one of my favorites, working with multicultural teams, teams that are um, made up of people who have been brought up in many different locations. So you might have a a German manager and on her team you might have a Brazilian and and a a Canadian, um, maybe an Indian. And she she might call and say, look, I've got this really multicultural team. Um, We're struggling. Some of them speak up. Some of them don't speak up in meetings. How do I deal with it? What kind of management technique should I use? And so there we go in and we and I assist the team looking at what is the best way to help every individual on this team be the best version of themselves and feel comfortable? Um, in that sort of environment, um, I think a number of studies have found that well, there are three invisible factors to high-performing teams. One of them, as I think many, many um, studies show, is cognitive diversity. So these days people say, okay, let me get together the the, the best team in the world made up of people who come from all over the place and managers and leaders and project leaders are expecting just because they're cognitively diverse that they're going to be a high-performing team. Right. But that alone, as we know, can create difficulties. Uh, There are people or specific cultures. If you put an Australian on that team, you can probably hear from my accent that I was brought up in Australia. So you put an Australian on that team, they're very confident in a team meeting to say to the team leader, no, Joe, I don't agree with that plan. Let's do something else. But if you have on that team um, someone who may have been brought up in Vietnam or in Thailand who has um, been taught that it's inappropriate in a meeting to give your personal opinion, then they won't speak up in that meeting. And that alone will um, cause different dilemmas for the team. One, it could be that the Australian on the team is thinking, oh, this Vietnamese person is uninterested, not motivated, silly, doesn't know anything about the project, all of these prejudices that they're thinking about, the team leader also might be um, unaware of what the true operational difficulties might be if this Vietnamese person perhaps is um, an operational person. And there you have just two different dilemmas on a small team of four. So um, we would go in and assist that team and look at what are the different values of the team members? What makes, what motivates you? What helps you speak up in a meeting or to the leader? How do you deal with conflict? What does silence mean to you? Um, as we know, you know, silence could mean a million different things. And then we help the team figure out, okay, look at the differences in our values. Look at the similarities. How would we as a team be more efficient and how could we communicate better? How could we be more efficient so that we could as a team really achieve our goals with less dilemmas, less frustrations, less miscommunication and less problems? So that's that's one area that I, I really enjoy working on and that I work on a lot at the moment and that's really working with multicultural teams, helping them create a team charter to be the best, to become a thriving team, to be the best version that team can be. Sure. Now, I have a question, and I know you have two other things to, yes, <laughs> to share, fine. but let's stay with this challenge for a moment, if sure. you don't mind. 
Because it's, I mean, for the way that I look at this, at least, is that the, it's really the art and the crafting of an inclusive team culture that you're focused on, right? I mean, if I think about this idea of inclusive leadership, diversity in itself doesn't produce the value we are seeking. It requires the active crafting or co-creation of that inclusive environment. And I think that's what you're describing. Absolutely. How do you handle, I guess, two two situations? And, and I think that it, for me, it, it, it's about stereotypes a little bit, right? Because you may have a an Australian, I mean, team team member who has the same sentiment about hierarchy and not speaking up in a meeting. And you have your... I mean, we made this example of the Vietnamese who may have the struggle with hierarchy as well. But the perception of the Vietnamese is oftentimes through stereotypes, right? I mean, it validates certain stereotypes. But the fellow Australian who has a similar problem is just maybe unprofessional or, you know, we, we, we have other judgments that we apply to members of our own culture or of our own group that struggle with the same behaviours. That's really where the the leader and the team members have to do a lot of work. So we tend to say that if you have never um, worked with that particular person before, if you're about to have a conference call with somebody who maybe is from the other side of the world and you have an idea of how that culture works, then we tend to use... um, stereotypes, I guess, uh, as, as a safety net and say, I am imagining I'm about to have a call with a Japanese person. I know that generally I've learned that Japanese people are collectivists. They don't give their own personal opinion. So how am I going to get the feedback from this Japanese person? You can prepare yourself like that. Mm-hmm. However, that's if you don't know the person well and the other team member. However, in terms of being an inclusive leader or an inclusive team member, It's all about taking the time to really get to know your team members individually as a person. So remove the etiquette that you might put on their forehead saying, she's Australian and so she's going to be outspoken and forward. Take the time to get to know the person, speaking to them one-on-one, maybe having um, a, a coffee occasionally where you're not talking about business and getting to know who they are, creating that bond where the person feels comfortable opening up and knowing, okay, yes, I know that this person is Australian and that they're usually happy to speak up and and be direct. But I've learned from the few conversations I've had with her that she's maybe a bit shy or maybe doesn't like conflict or maybe has had a difficult situation in the past that I should be aware of. So it's all about taking the time to get to know the individuals on your team. And that's why we say, I'm strongly uh, advise that, you know, if you're going to do this kind of training of inclusive leadership or running an intercultural team, it's not a one-day workshop that makes the trick. Click and everything is fine. It's about working on yourself. And uh, the training is a lot about self-awareness. Who am I? How do I communicate? How do people perceive me? What do I need to maybe modify in my leadership techniques or in my teaming techniques to help people understand who I am and to not be afraid to speak up and and speak to me? 
one of my closest friends, I was in, I was in Australia um, in January just on holidays, and one of my closest friends still lives there. She's a very successful lawyer. She, she works for a very big Australian um, law firm. And she, she's in her uh, early 50s and um, she knows now that people are terrified of her. She's a very, very strong woman, very uh-huh. strong personality. And she knows, she said, she said to me, I can see when I walk into the cafeteria to get a coffee, just as soon as I say good morning, I see the terrified look on people's faces. <laughs> so I know that I have to just change the way I say good morning yeah. to people because they're petrified of what I might just say. But the more we know about ourselves, uh, the easier it helps us become inclusive leaders as well. Yeah. So the good news is, well, or the good or bad news for some people is that there is really no shortcut to getting to know yourself and to people, right? I mean, and I know many leaders who wish there was some sort of a shortcut or who even use information about different cultures, you know, badly, right? Because the way I've always seen is it's not, pre- I mean, it's not predictive, of a particular person. It's just descriptive of a broad pattern that exists within a population. So just because it's, let's say, a broad generalization, you can't just apply that to individuals. You still need to get to know individuals and don't be surprised if they don't fit the norm, because who does? Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we, we say that um, when we say that generally Germans behave in a certain way. Generally, Brazilians behave in a certain way. We're talking about frequently observed behavior of large groups. That's right. So if you have 10,000 Brazilians, they might behave in a similar way compared to 10,000 Germans. But then take one Brazilian out of that group and maybe that Brazilian was uh, maybe his father is French, maybe he did an MBA in the USA, maybe he went to school in Vietnam, whatever it might be. Um, and, and, and today, this is quite common. I was brought up in Australia, which is very, very multicultural, where I was growing up. So my family is of Italian origins. Mm. And we were brought up, I was brought up in a very Italian community. And in my neighbourhood, there was our house the neighbours on the right-hand side were Maltese and the neighbours on the left-hand side were Lebanese. So um, my, my nephew today, um, my son's brother, um, is growing up in Australia with a father who is Italo-Australian and a mother who is Filipina. Mm-hmm. So what does that make him? I mean, what sort, of, what's, what sort of values will he have? So we must never stereotype. We must never just prejudge. That kid is Australian. I imagine he's going to be A, B, C, or D. Yeah. That's the worst that we can do as a leader. Right. Fascinating, right? I mean, so, you know, we all are carriers of all these social influences in a sense, right? And all we need to do is understand that and maybe, you know, use that understanding to relate to others in a sense. But it's easier said than done, I feel, you know, because stereotypes are ready readily available for us. And they're so easy, aren't they? They're so easy. Oh, I'm going to uh, uh, Germany and so I'm expecting everyone to be very direct in Germany and and be very authoritarian maybe. Yeah, yeah, sure. So what do you do when they're not? Then you get confused and, um, and when we're confused and we run into challenges, we tend to easily brush it off as a cultural problem, especially, I find, when you have two large groups of teams Um, When you have maybe in one company, you might have a large group of French people and a large group of Germans. 
that becomes the then the them and us team. So sure. the French will do something in a, in a meeting, and then the Germans will all go out and have a drink together. Oh, those Frenchies—they're always late at meetings, and they're always talking, 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 and they always will criticize the French group. And then the French group—they have their drinks together. Oh, those Germans—they're always just so arrogant and all the things that we stereotype, it comes out a lot in those situations. Yeah. So that's when we try to help them see that there's there's much more than just what you read in a book about stereotypes. Yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> so before, I mean, the, the question is, of course, how do we actually, when, when there are, handling stereotypes is probably one thing, the other problem is then how do we actually reconcile different norms and values that people carry? I mean, in this team around speaking up in meetings, right? Whether, I mean, sometimes it may not matter where somebody is from. If you have people who can readily speak up, who are not afraid to tell their boss they disagree or, or give direct feedback, and you have people who struggle with that, how do, you how do we reconcile those values? There's a lot of work involved. Here, I think the first thing we must do is switch off autopilot when we go to work, switch it off, knowing that when I am about to go walk into a meeting, I need to be aware of how I usually behave in a meeting and avoid doing that. That means walking into the meeting beforehand, having written down a few notes about, okay, I am, what is this meeting about? Is it a decision-making meeting? So I need to get feedback from three different members of my team. How do I usually get feedback from team member A, from B, and from C? Thinking about it beforehand and then knowing, okay, team member A is easy. I know that he or she just usually tells me in the meeting what's going to happen. Team member B, I've noticed, never speaks up in a meeting. So maybe I need to actually go and have a coffee with this person one-on-one -on -one, or maybe invite them into my office one-on-one -on -one, and actually hear what's going, what they're saying. That might be one technique. So the first thing is switch off autopilot and don't just walk into a meeting or a conference call and say, hey, team, okay, we have to make a decision. What do you all think? That's the worst thing that we can do <laughs> if we want to be an inclusive team. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's one thing. and. So being aware of how what is the best environment for each individual to really speak up and be the best version of themselves. And for some people, it's being in a crowded room and speaking up with a loud voice. They love to be heard and that's it, um, but not for everybody. And so that can mean either have more one-on-ones. Now, I know that can be time-consuming, but you might be getting the best information on those one-on-ones or use different techniques. Some techniques that are used are, for example, giving everybody just post-its and maybe you can ask them to discuss, write down their thoughts on a piece of paper, discuss them openly. Okay, someone said this, someone said that, what do we do about it? There are different techniques such as those, but the first thing is switch off autopilot and don't assume that we all behave in a similar way and don't assume that just because I'm quiet, I have nothing to say. I mean, it's great advice, right? Switch off autopilot. There's also the advice is observe better and reflect, right? And build some techniques, some skills to some degree. Yes, absolutely. So it's about finding different techniques to help each individual find the, the, the psychological safety. So we were talking about high-performing teams. 
And so we're saying there are three invisible factors. One of them is cognitive diversity, which we said is great because it brings creativity, but alone it doesn't make a high-performing team because it creates dilemmas. The second one is psychological safety. And psychological safety is, of course, about individuals feeling that they can be themselves when they're in the work environment and not being afraid to take risks for the team, not being afraid to speak up and say, hey, I have an idea without thinking, oh, no, everyone else is going to laugh at me or say something strange. So the psychological safety. And there we have the issues that we've just been discussing until now that for some people it's easy to to speak up for others. It's not um, depending on what part of the world they may have been brought up in or what society they were brought up in. And the third invisible factor is um, motivational drive. And yet the way we motivate um, a a North American or a US American could be very different to the way we motivate a a Brazilian or or an Australian or a German. These are the things that we, we need to learn, the different skills I can share a little personal anecdote, which is not an easy one for for me um, because um, it really showed some incompetencies on my behalf. Um, A few years ago, I was working in in Brazil and leading a small team of uh, Brazilian women. And um, before I traveled to Brazil, I had done my homework. I learned as much as I could about the culture. I was learning the language. And I thought that I'd been integrating Brazilian culture quite well. At one stage, the, the training manager and I, um, give her a different name, let's call her Lydia. Lydia and I had to fly down to Sao Paulo. We were based in Rio and have a meeting with the university professor there. I had about 90 minutes to convince this university professor to allow 100 of his students to do a paid internship with our company the following year on, a, on, a, on, a, on the FIFA Football World Cup, so a very big event and we know that Brazilians love football. I thought this meeting was going to be a piece of cake. Piece of cake, yeah. I went in on autopilot. <laughs> a very unsuccessful meeting. Basically at the end of the meeting, I was had not been capable of convincing this professor to give us his students, to help the yeah. students work with us. So we walked out of this meeting and I was in, in a bit of shock. And um, Lydia and I get into the car, into the taxi that's taking us back to the airport, fly back to Rio. And after a few minutes of silence, I turned towards my, my colleague, Lydia, and I said, Lydia, what just happened in there? That was awful. And she turned to me and she burst into tears and she's crying. And she's sobbing, sobbing, sobbing. And she said, Tanya, you don't listen to me. You haven't been listening to me for the last few months. I've been telling you that you cannot do things here your way. You have to do it the Brazilian way. And I said, what do you mean you've been telling me for months? You haven't said anything like that. And she said, yes. And in our meeting last month, I said A, B, C. And last week, again, in our team meeting, I said X, Y, Z. I haven't heard you tell me anything like that. And it was then that I realized I woke up and I realized that my colleague had been giving me some precious feedback Mm -hmm. and I had not heard her feedback. Not, and I always thought I was a great listener, but I had not heard it because I had not accustomed or adapted my listening techniques to her communication techniques. Yeah. So we had very different values. Her cultural values, she was a bit more hierarchical, so generally found it very difficult to open up and give me feedback. 
She was very relationship oriented. And I had obviously not known how to create a strong relationship with her to help her speak up to me, to give her that psychological safety and the motivation to speak up to me. Yes. And I realized if I was doing that with her, well, I was I was distraught at that stage. I thought so many things going through my mind. I was thinking, well, this poor Lydia probably thinks that I don't respect her because I haven't been listening to her, she thought. She probably thought that, oh, my manager Tanya thinks that I'm uh, I'm incompetent or I'm not, you know, not strong enough. I don't know what I'm doing because she's not listening to me. And I was losing her respect. She thought I didn't respect her. And I was thinking then I was probably doing the same thing with my other Brazilian colleagues. Mm. That was when I had to go home and went to, to my apartment that evening and thought, okay, something has to change here. Our team is not going to reach our objectives this way. Yes. I was in the middle of creating a disaster. So that's when you, you really have to learn, okay, every individual has a different way of being motivated. How do we motivate different individuals according to what their needs are? What I hadn't picked up on, I only picked up on it afterwards, this importance of uh, relationship building and opening up. So in Brazil, in Brazil, I found that the women in general, when they speak to each other, they all say, mi amor, my love. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, Tanya, you switch off autopilot. Next time you go into the office, you're going to say mi amor to your Brazilian female colleagues. Yeah, I couldn't do it. I said to myself, I'm going to do it, but I wasn't able to. It sounded so fake to me to call my colleagues my love. You were struggling with your own internal configuration. Exactly. So yeah. these are the dilemmas that we face. We, we, we're so if sometimes we're aware of it. I say, okay, I'll switch off autopilot and I'm going to try and say, mi amor, I wasn't capable. Yeah. So then you have to go back to the drawing room and think, okay, what other skill, what am I going to do to create a strong relationship and bond with my colleagues so that they feel comfortable opening up, giving me feedback and so that I can motivate them. So it's not an overnight thing. And sometimes we're capable, sometimes we're not so competent. Yes. And sometimes we're stressed, right? And then we lose the competency or we forget, right? So yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. But first of all, I mean, I th- thank you for sharing this, right? Because I know it's not always easy to, you know, as when that's your professional focus to tell about your own <laughs> accidents and your own mm. learnings. But that's how we learn, right? That's how we we actually figure out that the skill isn't, you know, a, a training program that we actually need to reflect, take feedback differently. This is, and this is painful, right? I mean, this is deeply threatening to our ego sometimes because you could have reacted very differently, right? And and it takes that humility, that learning. And once we realize the power of it, we want to share it with others, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I think that's um, that's a lot as to why I um, uh, got involved in in being an intercultural trainer. Yes. I mean, yeah. I, I explained briefly the, the my uh, my childhood. It was different cultures all around me constantly, and I've, um, I think I grew up wanting to be a bridge person. And I, I loved I loved listening to the different languages around me constantly. I loved um, that I could uh, smell the different foods from my neighbors. Mm, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah. That was always fun. <laughs> and 
I was very lucky as a, as a teenager and uh, grew up, I was given the opportunity to travel a lot when I was quite young. And I knew when I was 15 or 16 that I wanted to work in the world of international sports events. Mm. I've, I loved being at an international sport event. Um, I loved listening to, not under, I loved not understanding everything around me. I loved hearing different languages and not knowing what people were talking about and just listening to this, uh, to the world of Babel, basically. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> Um, it was fun, and uh, and I loved being in that in that environment. Um, and so I knew I wanted to work in an international environment. And then when I started working in an international environment, I realised it was not all as easy as it could seem. Yes. Yeah. And so we make mistakes. Um, we make people cry, and sometimes we cry ourselves. And we realise that there's there are a lot of people out there who could benefit from what we've learned, um, benefit from the studies we've read and the, from our own personal experiences and so um, benefit from helping them. I think that's what has uh, um, what motivates me when I hear people come out with stories saying, oh, um, we're challenged by uh, this dilemma or this dilemma. How can we, how can we move forward? Yeah. Thanks, because that was one of my questions, right? Why do you do <laughs> what Sorry. you do? But, but no, no, but, but you, you, you forgot to mention those other two things that you focus on. We got stuck on the <laughs> team, right? Teams, and yeah. that makes, makes perfect sense because that's a tough one, right? It I mean, it's, a, it's also one that is um, in global organizations and so forth, just, just very prevalent. But what are the other two areas you work in? Sure. So one of them is quite, uh, I want to say straightforward, only because it's something that has existed in a way for many years, but um, it gets uh, deeper and deeper, I think, as we go along. And that is really working on one-on-ones with expatriates and their families or their spouses. So people who um, have been asked to move abroad by their company, um, so a, a Swiss company who asks their Zurich-based employee to maybe move to, to the Middle East or to Brazil or to Japan. So really assist these individuals, helping them hopefully overcome the challenges, the, the culture shock that tends to occur when we do such a thing, yeah. helping people realise that it's quite normal for us to, to struggle when we do something like that, you know, we get very excited about the move. We say, oh, I'm taking my family, my spouse and my family to the other side of the world. It's going to be fun. I'm going to learn new friends, meet new friends, have a new job, meet new people, discover a new country. But the ambiguity that encircles such a move that, that is constantly there um, can make us feel very, very um, inadequate sometimes. Mm -hmm. This ambiguity of the simple things that we do at home that are no longer simple when we travel. So how do I buy a postage stamp? It sounds so obvious at home, but it's not. not how, do, how do I send a package? Or going into a supermarket and not being able to explain to the cashier what you need or not explaining if the cashier is asking you, you know, would you, do you need change? Do you need a receipt? Whatever it is. And we feel inadequate because we, we feel like a, a 12-year-old, we feel as though we lose our independence. And I think 
for managers in companies that are that are used to having power and being confident and in control, it's even a worse experience. Yes, absolutely. And so we we actually tend to lose ourselves a bit. We we say, who is this? Who is this person I've become? I don't really like this person I've become, or is it me? Is it the people around me who are making me become this person? So we we tend to lose ourselves a bit. Um, there's a, a big roller coaster of emotions um, when we do this kind of thing as individuals, and then there's the family to look after. They also go through this roller coaster of emotions. I um I, I work a lot with individuals to help them and their spouse and families understand that this roller coaster is normal. It's completely normal to feel these up and downs, to to cry sometimes and not know why we're crying. Yeah. To to lose ourselves. Um, and we we work through it, helping them understand what are the what procedure can we undergo to to get through this culture shock, basically. And what is what can I do to really integrate this society? So that's number two. And the third one is maybe a bit similar to the first one, but slightly different. The third one is working with companies who um, want to set up a branch in a different company. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were just briefly discussing before we started here, I was contacted just recently by a, uh, a Swiss company who wants to set up a, a branch or ha- they have just set up a branch of the company in Japan. And they're being challenged on all sides by different things. So one is this company has created a product that they want to launch in Japan. So they have created this branch in Japan to produce the launch together. There we have the possibilities, the difficulty, the challenge where it can become very quickly, instead of one team launching this project together, a them and us situation. The Japanese corporate culture with the Swiss corporate culture, the Japanese national culture with the Swiss national culture. So cultural dilemmas there. How do we reconcile these? How do we ensure that the team members communicate effectively together? That's one area. Another area still in that same uh, same configuration is this Swiss company, for example, um, have created a product and they've subcontracted it to another Japanese company. So where's the, how do we motivate this Japanese company? We have different motivational factors. How do we motivate the individuals? How do we motivate the team compared to the Swiss company? So that's the third area, which is also very, very fascinating because we have, it's very complicated. And as we were saying, this is not a one-day workshop that you do with this company to help them overcome that. You accompany them over a period of time. And ideally, it's not just the Swiss company that does the training. It's the Japanese branch that does the training as well. How do you reconcile that? It's it's. I'm, I'm, uh, we were saying earlier. For me, it's a, it's a challenge just to think about how we're going to yes. um, assist them um, and, and make it as smooth as possible. Yeah. Is it? Do you find it hard? From sometimes. I mean, I, I've I've seen this even when when companies recognize oh, we have a problem here. Their default is let's do a let's say a one day training or one session type of a thing to then convince them that no. I mean, this is. Um, this is delicate work that takes time and you can help them with it, but they need to invest in that, right? I mean, it's um, it's oftentimes a real, I mean, I, I found that difficult sometimes to, to mm. convince people that they need to invest beyond what they, they assume. Yes, you're absolutely right. 
And when you use the word investment here, it's not just a financial investment. I think a lot of companies are worried about the time investment. Yes. Everyone is just so weary of investing time in anything at the moment in terms of um, uh, we don't have time to do that. We've got time to do a half-day workshop or a one-day workshop. We don't have time to do anything more than that because we're so busy, 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 busy. And that's where I find uh, it's difficult to convince the companies of, of what is really necessary. And some people do think it's a one-day workshop fix and then they know everything. I think sometimes I let them do the one-day workshop and then during the workshop, so many other questions come up that they realize actually we need to do a little bit more. Maybe it's better to do two hours a month rather than a one-day workshop yeah. over six months. It's a topic where you realize the more you know, the more you need to know. And I think they realize that um, throughout the trainings and that's when they start asking for more. Yeah. It's hard beforehand. Yeah. Um, out of curiosity, what do you think? I mean, you, you've already talked about a lot of specific things and skills people can, can take from your experience. But if you were to just summarize it, what, what is something that people can actually implement that are easy to implement from your experience that would help them along? The first thing, and for me, the most important thing, I mentioned it briefly, but the most important thing is be aware of how you behave and then switch off autopilot. And then um, learn as much as you can about the people you are working with, whether it's going onto um, the internet and Googling how do Brazilians behave or how do Japanese behave and learning that generally, being aware that use that just as a safety net until you've met the person. Once you've met the person, you need to get to know them personally and observe. Observe, observe, observe. And when I say observe, it means observing also with the ears. The Chinese character for listen is beautiful. It's, I know it's called a ting. I don't know how to pronounce that correctly. Mm -hmm. And this Chinese character is made up of four individual characters Which And each one of those characters represents what we need in order to listen. We need to use our ears, our eyes, our heart, and undivided attention. So that's how we learn to listen and observe. Mm. I think it's really beautiful. I think we learn a lot from that one character. Thank you, Tanya. Um, sounds easy. It's probably one of the hardest things for all of us to practice, especially when we are when when our circumstances don't reinforce it or or are not conducive to it. Thanks for sharing this. Thank you very very much for the invitation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can sign up for more wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for the Inclusive Leader Podcast. To find out more about the Inclusive Leadership Institute, visit us at www.theinclusiveleadershipinstitute.com. Mm -hmm.